That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show Is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnekin whole lot of other things indeed. Welcome everybody to another episode of This Show Is All About You. Thank you for taking the next hour to spend with me as we uh, dig under, get under the uh, stories of the day, the issues of the day, and look for those things that connect us no matter what we may differ on. And hopefully along the way, get a chuckle or two, a few insights, and maybe a chance to reflect on our own lives, how they are and where we would like them to go. That's what this show is is all about because that's what you're all about. That's what I'm all about. So thank you for being here. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You'll find me rather easily. Would love to connect with you and chat with you, see what's going on with you. Remember, if you miss any of this episode or any other episodes of this show is all about you, you can find it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. That means Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Megaphone, just about anywhere. So if you uh, are listening as a podcast, thank you so much for doing so. And please leave me a review. I would really appreciate it. And then pass this on to your friends and family who might also be interested. Special thanks at the front end of the program to the show's longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds. They do so not only by introducing kids of all ages to possible career options in the aerospace world, but they also teach them how to better connect with themselves, better advocate for themselves, all for the benefit of their own lives, that of their families, and that of their communities. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, Check out their website at airsci, A-I-R-S-C-I, dot org, and you'll hear more about them during the breaks. Of course, it is coming up on 4th of July. It's, 4th of July is on a weird day this year. It's on a Tuesday, so some people have today, well, Monday, July 3rd, off. Other people do not. I'm kind of both today, as it, as it turns out. I am in the studio, and I am thinking a lot about freedom today, not just because of the holiday, but because last week was had some big things go on with some Supreme Court decisions and the like, and I promised a couple of weeks ago that I was going to revisit my episode from last year when we talked talking about the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, what's happened in the last year. Seems like an appropriate conversation to have, a reflection on freedom. And I had an experience over this weekend uh, that I'm going to tell you about as a way to kind of lead into that. But first, as we always do on this show, let's take a look back at some of the news of the past week. Uh, in a segment that I call, What in the World is Going On? All right, no clips for you this week. I'm just going to jump right into it. Of course, we always start with what's the latest in the war in Ukraine. And last week I wasn't in studio, so I didn't get a chance to talk about the bizarre Wagner rebellion against uh, Vladimir Putin and his military that started on a Friday, ended on a Saturday, And nobody still really knows exactly what happened 
And at this point, no one really knows where uh, Poroshkin, the head of the, Wag the Wagner, Wag Wagner Group, I always want to call him Wagner, Wagner Group, happens to be in Belarus, and no one really knows essentially what's going to happen with the 25,000 fighters under his command. In the meantime, several generals have disappeared from public view, which is never a good sign when you are in Russia, and has led to a lot of speculation that Putin, thoroughly scared by this challenge to his power, the worst that he's ever experienced in decades, may have scared him into starting a purge of his own military. Russia has seen this before. Stalin did this in the 1930s against his officer corps and murdered almost everybody above the rank of captain by the time it was done. That's not to say that this is going to happen here, but for someone like Putin, who is deeply steeped, his worldview is deeply steeped in nostalgia about the Soviet Union and as the good old days of Soviet power, and as a person who embraced a lot of the methods used to build and sustain that power, it is not out of the realm of possibility that similar tactics will be used on these military men. Nobody knows what that will lead to, but in the meantime, what it has done, it has given Ukraine an opportunity to push further while the country, while Russia is distracted, push further in their counteroffensive. They are finding it slow going, mainly because over the last handful of months, the Russians have set up a number of defensive fortifications that have proven to be deadly, particularly large minefields that blanket this open area in southeast Ukraine, where the Ukrainian military is pushing hard to drive a wedge between Russian forces in that part of the country. That causes things to move slowly, and it causes a lot of people to die. And that's the difficulty going on here. So remains to be seen if this is going to benefit the Ukrainians in the long run, but it certainly can't help the Russians that their forces seem to be more and more divided against themselves. All right, so that's the first piece of news that I wanted to hit on. And that's really the main one uh, because I really want to jump into today's topic because there's a lot to talk about. So I'm going to dovetail the news portion with my story for the day. The other big news piece that I was going to talk about from the past week are, of course, the Supreme Court rulings that came down at the end of last month, end of June, as they always do. The big cases are always, uh, the, the, the decisions are always released at the end of June before the court goes on recess. Last week, some big ones came down. The ones that got the most attention, of course, were the rulings of the Supreme Court that effectively ended affirmative action policies in American higher education. And the one a few days later, that ruled in favor of a evangelical Christian web designer who did not want to be creating wedding websites for same-sex couples, ruled in favor of that specific case. And as much as last year's Dobbs decision that uh, over, overturned Roe v. Wade sent shockwaves across the country, these two did similarly. It wasn't quite the same level of outcry as last year, and I think there are reasons for that, not necessarily good or bad reasons, but definitely reasons for that. But nevertheless, they were, in some ways, as much as the Dobbs decision, uh, an indicator of significant changes that will be on the horizon. And as I talked about last year, when the Dobbs decision came down, opening up a whole series of really unpredictable possibilities that may happen as a result, not just in a legal sense, but certainly in a political sense and in a social sense. Uh, and that's one of the things about Supreme Court rulings in general that they tend to do. While they tend to rule on very specific cases that are being put forward in a specific way, and oftentimes the rulings are focused on that specific case themselves, they also establish 
precedents and also open the door to possibilities for further pushing on certain laws depending on what the rulings happen to be. And in this case, rulings by a very clearly conservative majority Supreme Court against affirmative action, one of a policy that came out of the civil rights movement back in the 1960s, an issue regarding race uh, in this country, and then another one involving uh, sexual identity and same-sex marriage on the other, uh, in this case, something the Supreme Court has already ruled on, brought out a whole lot of opinions, both by people who supported the decisions and by people who decidedly did not. And the reaction to these cases uh, ran across the spectrum, as you can imagine. One common thread, though, and I always look for common threads. <laughs> I always look for common threads because I think in a lot of ways they're usually there somewhere. Common thread is nobody can answer the question, well, now what? What does this all mean would be another question that nobody can really answer. Such can be the nature of these Supreme Court decisions, and we've seen it in the past uh, with other decisions that, that the court has made. One of the things I mentioned last year in my episode um, about the Dobbs case was if there is a universal in what happens among human beings when events happen, it is the law of unintended consequences that every decision that is made, whether we're talking about a political one, a judicial one in this case, even in our personal lives, unintended consequences happen. And part of a smart, discerning individual, as well as a smart, discerning group of people, whether we're talking about a large community, a state, a country, a court, the sign of a discerning group is one that takes those seriously and actively considers them. That what are they? It's not that they should try to anticipate every single possible occurrence, but to a certain degree, that has to happen. And in the case of judicial rulings like this, so often they can be inherently dissatisfying no matter what side somebody might be on on a specific case because the court is not bound to necessarily come out and say, based on this ruling, this is what everything else now means. They're not bound to do that. And in the case of both the affirmative action ruling and the same-sex uh, marriage website ruling, the court in its majority did not lay out what this meant moving forward. So in the case of affirmative action, the, uh, the majority decision that was penned by Chief Justice John Roberts did not say, if you read it, did not say anything about what it meant for uh, diversifying American education, which he actually called a commendable goal, quote unquote. He did not say what it meant for that. The Christian website, marriage website ruling, did not say what this meant in terms of what businesses could be considered expressive businesses, which it ruled this website designer was involved in free expression as part of the business, and what isn't. So it didn't, dis didn't discern, for example, could a shoe store, right, providing a basic service, claim a you know, religious belief to discriminate against another group? Uh, it, didn't dis it didn't distinguish that. It did not... The majority decision penned by Justice Neil Gorsuch did not lay that out. And in the meantime, the dissenting opinions laid out by the three liberal judges on the court expressed deep concern about what these rulings might open the door for. In the case of affirmative action, rolling back uh, 
the diversity not only in American universities and the types of people from different backgrounds that students would be meeting and learning from and getting to know, but also to what degree that huge channel through education of the ability for Americans of any background to find success in society, to what degree that would be limited more and more to people historically who come from communities who haven't had that much, has much access to education or to the privilege of uh, greater wealth, if you will, in the United States. And in the case of Christian websites who do not want to create content for same-sex weddings, the concern expressed by the liberal judges was, to what degree is this going to open more areas of discrimination if people simply want to claim religious belief against a certain policy? And some of the hypotheticals used in the court deliberations were things like, um, what if somebody does not want to, is going to run a photography business and does not want to take photos of interracial children, children from interracial marriages, because they believe on religious grounds that that is something that should not happen. It would put lawmakers in a position to decide on the, I guess, on the acceptability of religious views of any kind for any reason on any issue. And that is going to be a challenge because since the Civil Rights Act and all the similar acts of the Civil Rights Movement, we live in a country where basic services, the understanding has been basic services in business and in employment, cannot discriminate against people on the basis of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation. The concern that the dissents put forward in that case was that this might open the door for a whole lot of efforts to roll back those elements of law. And no one really knows if that is going to happen or not. So with that in mind, that's what got me thinking a lot about freedom over the last week or so. And it isn't as easy a thing for us to talk about, even though when we first hear the word, we all tend to think we know what we mean. And if you listen to the show that I'm a co-host of, Breaking Up With Our BS with my friend Tawny Santabria, if you listen to that, you know that every once in a while, she and I take a word and we pull it together and we kind of take it apart. And we kind of go, what does this really mean when we use it? And almost any word we can take can uh, be put under such scrutiny because in some ways they are what we define them to be, right, words. And how we use them has a lot to do with our own context as well as with our conditioning over time, perhaps with the belief system that we grew up with, perhaps with a belief system that we're developing that runs counter to ones that we grew up with. All of us in that constant state of flux with these things. And freedom on its most basic level, can, define as, can be defined as the opposite of bondage. Right? To have the ability to be free means to work, work, walk about, and live unencumbered by someone else's efforts to control, limit, worst case scenario, enslave you. And this country has been built since day one, in theory, upon this uh, specific idea of freedom not only being the rightful way for humans to live, but truly the natural way that they should live. And that goes all the way back to the Enlightenment, to, um, to the so-called founding fathers of the country, even though they themselves at the time defined who was really human and who was really at the highest level of humanity differently than the majority of people do today. 
the majority, but not all, right? So, and then of course comes the question laid out in the Declaration of Independence in the U.S. Constitution about those things that the United States is meant to not only stand for, but protect for all of its citizens, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Uh, and of course, because of the amendments to the Constitution, particularly for our purposes today, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which came out of the Civil War, the idea there was to provide more equality defi defined across the country under the Constitution, under federal law. And ever since, questions then about equity, which is different than that. Equity meaning providing more opportunity for people, regardless of what they look like, where they come from, their socioeconomic status, the opportunity, the avenues for opportunity for them to succeed in the country, to what degrees those need to be provided by outside sources, other than the individuals themselves, like government or towns or communities or religious organizations, and to what degree they should just have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, I suppose you could say, and work with the hand that they've been dealt. Those are the big questions that almost all of these decisions that we've been talking about from last week and from last year with the Dobbs decision tend to intersect through and weave through and leave contradictory impressions, contradictory answers, depending on who you're talking to and where you stand on these things. But when we come back from our first break, what I'd like to do is tell you a story of an experience I had over the weekend that might elucidate some of this a little bit more, or at least, if nothing else, give us some things to think about so that we, in, hopefully in the end, might appreciate what we each mean by freedom a little bit more. So come on back in just a minute on this show is all about you. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back everyone to this show is all about you. Today's episode is about freedom in part because this is the 4th of July holiday we are in the midst of um, leading up to tomorrow as of this recording, uh, but also because of the Supreme Court rulings last week and my reflection on the Dobbs decision from a year ago, kind of bringing all these things together as I think about what does it truly mean to be free? Because of course there is a tension in that if we're talking about individual freedom, you know, we might know really what we mean by that, but when it comes to how that affects other people's freedom, right, or a community or a group's definition of freedom, either from a religious point of view, a social point of view, whatever the case may be, it gets more difficult to define. And how do those freedoms of individual versus group, how do they coexist? Well, American history and the history of, of democracy in general says there's almost always tension and difficulty and that isn't always a real answerable question other than in perhaps the most general and most idealistic terms. And while that has value, sometimes in moments like this where a lot of things feel in flux, those can feel uh, unsatisfactory. Let's just put it that way. But 
So, and I'm not going to claim to suddenly have all these answers for you today. I'm not, and I don't think anybody could. And if somebody is telling you that they do, they're probably trying to sell you something. But I did want to tell you a story today as the centerpiece of the show about an experience I had over the weekend that certainly gave me a lot to think about and uh, helped me interact and connect with a lot of people around that larger question, individual freedom versus that of rights for other people, particularly other people who others don't agree with. And it is a very challenging thing. But this past weekend, up here where I am in the Pacific Northwest, was really, I suppose, what you could call a Chamber of Commerce weekend. (laughs) It was absolutely beautiful up here. The Pacific Northwest gets a reputation not entirely undeserved or deserved of being a uh, gray scape (laughs) where where everybody slows down, everybody's mellow, everybody's depressed. It isn't that all the time. The summers up here are glorious. Um, In the midst of summer, the sun is coming up well before 6 a.m., and isn't down until well after 9 p.m., which means uh, a lot of time to be outside and enjoy the outdoors. And the Pacific Northwest is as beautiful as anywhere in the world when it comes to outdoor beauty and things to do. And the people who visit here and live here love to take advantage of those opportunities when they can. One person living in the Pacific Northwest who has not taken as much of an advantage of those opportunities the last few years, in part because of COVID and in part because I keep myself probably more busy than I should be sometimes, is me. And so this past weekend, I decided to go for a drive. And I went over the spine of the Cascades from where I am in the Seattle area. And I drove out into central Washington. And I went to a series of towns out there. I'll leave their names out. But I went into a series of towns there that I had first visited when I was a kid, when my family would come up on vacation to Washington State from Southern California and, uh, and remembering just the wonder of that, all the beautiful trees and the open farmland and the orchards for apricots and apples and so many others, the beautiful rivers, the mountains, the evergreen trees, the blue skies, the mountains in every single direction, some of them snow-capped, some of them not, just beautiful stuff. And so I decided I wanted to go reconnect with that. And so I took myself on a drive and... <laughs> It could not have worked out better. I, I tend to be this a person who does not plan out every single detail of what I want to do or when I go somewhere. Sometimes it might be a destination for, you know, sporting event or a concert or meeting up with, with friends and family. It might be something specific like that. But when I decide to go on a drive or on a road trip, part of the enjoyment for me is just taking what comes to me. Because so much of life for me is becoming more and more about that. What is right in front of me at any given moment? whether it's a task to do or an experience that I find myself in the midst of. And I like being in a position where I can respond to that rather than trying to force something, rushing myself to get to a destination and giving myself a certain amount of time to do it. Otherwise, if I don't, uh, everything has gone wrong. I would rather just kind of roll with it a little bit more. And so I did that. And early in the morning, (laughs) this one day, I ended up in in this small town that, unbeknownst to me, was about to have their 4th of July town-wide bash. There was a parade running through the main street of the town. It was one of those towns, right? One main drag. (laughs) And everything sort of branched off of that. And a number of older buildings stretching back to the turn of the 20th century, uh, maybe early 20th century, going through various degrees of restoration and and a number of different businesses of various kinds 
uh, in there. Of course, there's the neighborhood bakery, the neighborhood meat shop, uh, the, the neighborhood shoe store, the neighborhood uh, hardware store. And then, of course, there were some interesting other places, little boutique places like a, like a tapas bar. I mean, that was, was amazing, right? <laughs> you know, tapas and wine bar, I mean, amazing, in this small town. And uh, there was a, a local brewery there. There was a, an Eastern Medicine practitioner's shop. There was a guns and ammo store. All of this on the same drag. And the day when I arrived there, the entire town seemingly had showed up for this day of celebration. It was a parade, and then there was going to be a three-on-three basketball tournament going on. There was a big crafts, local crafts show going on. And so I kind of stumbled into this, and I found myself in the midst of one of those slices of Americana that we always hear so much about and that is part of the national fabric, really, the larger national narrative of not only the 4th of July, but also of America in general, because you had everyone in a town coming out to celebrate the town and the country. And it was quite interesting. Now, you might find this interesting in yourself in that I do this show every week and I'm up here talking for this entire time. But when I'm out in public, I actually am not always the most uh, engaging of people. I, I tend to observe a lot. I tend to watch people and listen a lot. I don't always engage a lot. And I went into this trip wanting to do the exact opposite, wanting to step into and talk with people, engage with people. And in the course of this day, I was able to do that a lot. I found myself talking with shopkeepers, the people at booths, even the people on the street, and observing their celebrations. There were a lot of people wearing red, white, and blue, a lot of families, people of all ages, uh, people of all political stripes. Um, I did not see a ton of, of MAGA hats or anything like that. I also didn't see a whole lot of specifically Republican or Democrat where I did see some. Uh, here and there, and did see the occasional uh, mm, rather racist uh, depictions of various things, but not nearly as many as one might expect. So it was, it was really interesting. I had a lot of conversations with people, whether they really knew it or not, and I was really trying to get to this question of what is freedom here? What do people mean by that? You know, one of the things that I've noticed that in rural America, in general, and this is a very broad generalization, but I've seen it and I experienced it this weekend in the conversations I've had, and I've had them in other places all over the country. One of the things that fuels the very fierce um, sense of identity, identification with America in rural America is this idea of both a nostalgia about the past, how something used to be, whether it was really that way or not, when things seemed simpler and clearer, and potentially the idea that things could get better. <coughs> Excuse me. The things could get better. Because in a lot of small towns, including these small towns that I went through over the weekend, these aren't areas that necessarily are thriving in every single part of their local economy. And it was very evident. It was evident in the homes. It was evident in some of the state of the buildings. Evident in, I guess, what you could call the infrastructure, roads in, in dire need of repair, things like that. So based on that and based in places where we've been hearing for a long time that the American dream is either not accessible anymore or is dead or is dying, what keeps these people going and what keeps them so focused and so committed to loving this country more so vociferously that they're willing to show up for this big celebration? The answers were almost always about each other. 
the community that was there, a shared sense of we are all here. And so in some ways, the celebration of freedom, as uh, this group of people understood it, and they had differing opinions of what that meant, the way they understood it was a, also as part of an identity, a collective identity among the people around them in their immediate area, that they were all there choosing to be there for a specific reason, and they had a lot of commonality in what their beliefs were. This was an area that leaned certainly more conservative than this side of the mountains in uh, the Seattle area. And it was also one that had a lot of focus on rootedness, people being rooted in that place and having been there for a really long time and finding that important. So a family legacy as well. So what I heard when I was kind of either asking outright or just listening to conversations or letting conversations drift towards the holiday, as I heard a lot of people for them, freedom and belief in America had in the idea of their own place, sense of place in this certain day, space and time being valid to themselves and they wished and hoped and even said at times was, would be found valid by other people outside of those areas, including people like me coming in to visit. Now, it wasn't so easy when I, when I asked questions about what does it mean for other people outside of this area, outside of these beliefs, what does freedom, what does their freedom mean to you? I asked a couple people this and they, the blank stares that I got had a, told me that probably they hadn't been asked that question necessarily before or didn't really know how to answer it. And that's okay. I've had the same look when I've asked that question, what do freedom of others mean? When I've asked people who live in cities and people living in more liberal areas, the same thing has happened where they haven't known necessarily how to answer. What is the relationship there? And the difficulty, of course, is that how we define freedom has a lot to do with the larger belief system that we have about ourselves, about the nature of humanity, the nature of government, the role of government, and our view of our own history and of larger American history and maybe even of human history. We just don't have easy answers to that. And so I wasn't expecting easy answers, nor was I really trying to trap anyone. I genuinely wanted to hear what freedom for others meant to these people that I was talking to in, this, in these small towns. And one thing they kept saying over and over again was, well, if I'm left alone, I'm happy to leave others alone unless <laughs> it's around these things. And the things they usually listed out were moral things around a certain moral code, Judeo-Christian moral code. Um, and so that's why things for a lot of people that I talked to, the majority in these towns, things like same-sex marriage made them nervous. Not as much necessarily on affirmative action. I talked to a lot of people who had no real opinion on it. And one said to me outright, I don't really have an opinion on it because I haven't gone to college. My kids are in the family business. They're not going to college. Haven't really thought about it. What usually they said something behind that of everybody needs to earn their place, which said to me, that was kind of a way of saying government entities shouldn't try to give other people a leg up over others, no matter what historical background or what the historical story may be. So with that in mind, of course, as I was driving around between these, these towns that I was going to and, and going into these shops and having these conversations, and I have to say, none of the conversations I had on these, what you would think to be very difficult um, t 
topics or ones that might lead to conflict or disagreement. I didn't have anything like that. I had very pleasant conversations, even when it became very clear that on some things I was differing with them. And so I enjoyed that. So I want to make clear about that. Nobody was, you know, um, nobody was hostile to me and I certainly wasn't hostile to them. There might be something to that, (laughs) that relationship, but nevertheless, that's not what it was. But as I was driving between these towns, I was thinking about that and it underscored to me a couple of things came up. One, um, you know, the, we've, we've all seen the don't tread on me flags, right? They, they are out. You see them from time to time. And uh, I've never liked that flag for a lot of reasons, not because I don't understand what it is, but in a lot of cases, uh, that don't tread on me means don't tread on my rights. And yet, <laughs> there are clearly, in the wake of the Supreme Court decisions last week, in some quarters on the extremes, there seemingly are a lot of people with those flags who are okay with the government treading on the rights of others. And that's a problem, right? Because if the government's not going to tread on one group, it shouldn't be treading on another group. That's, I mean, that seems to me to be logically consistent if that's the message that you want to take. And of course, the entire idea of being left alone by a government and there being no government involvement uh, doesn't really play out either because without government, uh, yeah, maybe you don't have taxes, which everybody thinks are so incredibly evil. But without government, you also don't have basic infrastructure. You don't have the the basic things that can keep towns and counties and states and countries moving. And in this very integrated technical world, you have to be able to have that. And taxes are a part of that. And so you, if you're going to say, don't tread on me, there shouldn't be any government involvement. Well, then there shouldn't be a government involvement in anything you're doing including in rural areas and in farming areas, there shouldn't be any government subsidies to help with crops either, if that's the case. So if, and that was the thing that I kept thinking about was, well, how does that fit into all of this uh, in these areas? And once again, there weren't real clear answers, but I came out of these conversations with a couple of thoughts on this. And that was the first one was, man, don't tread on me, doesn't work. (laughs) It really does not work and it does not hold a whole lot of value uh, to me because the idea of freedom as laid out in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution and in decades of jurisprudence and the practice of law has been built on on the fundamental assumption that there are individual rights and in the end, those individual rights run up against what is good for a larger group of people. That's why there are things like the Bill of Rights and subsequent amendments to the Constitution as the country grows to try and protect and maintain that balance, protecting individual rights and also making sure that those rights do not cut against the rights of anyone else. And depending on who you ask, over the past week, there are some who will say the Supreme Court made great rulings to protect individual rights Um, and maintain that balance, and then others who said it cuts against that entirely because there are those who argue that these rulings of last week negatively affect the rights of people of same-sex couples as well as people from uh, historically uh, disadvantaged, um, underrepresented, I should say, underrepresented minority groups. To what degree that is true, of course, depends on who you ask and will play out uh, in the long run. But my thoughts on what this meant 
for what do we mean when we talk about freedom, really got um, really got a shakeup based on this experience and all these conversations that I had over the weekend. And when we come back from the second break, our final break here on this show is all about you. I'll share some of those with you in light of the holiday and perhaps give us a way to kind of move forward in the wake of these Supreme Court decisions in a way that might help us a little further down the road as the ramifications of these play out. So stick around. Be right back. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. The challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I.org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you, a show about freedom and what we mean by it. And I've been suggesting throughout the show today that it maybe isn't quite as easy as we might think it is, at least maybe defining it for ourselves can be, but not always. But what it means as a general, uh, I guess you will, cornerstone, foundation stone for not just the country we live in, but the world that we live in. Because we use the words a lot. We see it everywhere, particularly around the 4th of July holiday. Let freedom ring. We hear it time and time again. And yet, the history of humanity, history of this country in particular, shows very clearly that uh, freedom has been defined and practiced in a number of ways, that various people at various times have had more of those freedoms than others have had, and that we live in a country today that is working, struggling, really, to find ways to sort of find equilibrium and develop true equity that allows as many people as possible from as many backgrounds as possible with as many beliefs as possible to have equitable equal access or at least roughly equal access to the opportunities that this country can provide. And I, one of those people who truly believes that this country can go in the right direction on all of these things. And I am somebody who refuses to give up on the idea that uh, America can be better than it is. Um, it can be. It always can be. Any country can always be better than it is. And one that claims, as this country has since its founding, to be the truest expression of what is real, what is just, and what is moral, depending on how we decide that, of any other country in human history, I would argue and have argued, has an obligation to push itself, an obligation to really dig into the decisions that are made on its people's behalf, an obligation to take its history seriously and debate it and discuss it and open it and listen to other people's opinions on it without turning every single thing into some sort of political war zone. Because in the end, 
that doesn't do much except sow further division. And that makes this whole thing even harder. So if we are talking about individual freedom, the ability to freely express one's opinion, the freedom to assemble with other people like-minded to express opinions, the freedom to protect oneself, the freedom to, name it, not be told what to do <laughs> on every single thing. That's one thing. We're talking about that. But we've seen time and time again, we see it every single day on the news. These are being challenged everywhere. When we're talking about things like books being banned in schools, that's one way of telling other people that they don't have the freedom to read what they want to read and that parents don't have the right to select and allow their children to read what their children want to read. There is that. So that's just one example of that. And of course, with the decisions on affirmative action in particular, it raises a lot of those questions about not just freedom, but to what degree that introspection on the past and this belief in creating more equitable opportunity means that there is an obligation to help groups that are rooted in those injustices of the past find more success today. And not everybody agrees on that, clearly. I am one of those people who believes that we should really take those questions seriously about obligations, that we should not dismiss them out of hand. I come to that from a number of reasons. If you've been listening to this show for a long time, you know that uh, I'm a historian of 20th century Europe, particularly of Nazi and post-war Germany, and I have seen the power and the importance of a country remembering its past and moving slowly, necessarily, in a lot of cases, moving slowly towards accounting for, taking steps um, to address its past wrongs, and taking steps to make up for them, to make amends for them. Even though in the case of Nazi Germany, there's no one thing or no collection of things that could ever make full amends for the crimes committed there. And when we're talking about, of course, about the legacy of slavery, there's a much longer distance of time since the end of slavery, since the end of Nazism. But when it comes to uh, racial segregation in this country, racial segregation in this country did not disappear until well after the Nazis were in the dustbin of history. So that's more recent. And certainly it's even more what's even more recent is the move towards equal rights for same-sex individuals and couples. That's even more recent. So there are differences, clearly, in all of that. But I think what's important for me, and coming out of not just this weekend, but just reflecting on what happened in these court cases and in the year since the Dobbs case, is that as the unintended consequences of these decisions continue to play out, and in the case of the two most recent rulings begin to play out, it would be best for each of us to have a really good idea of not only what does freedom mean to us, but then what does that meaning of freedom to us mean for others, particularly others that we do not know, or maybe others that we will never meet, and others that with whom we disagree. And it doesn't matter what side, quote unquote, of an issue you find yourself on here. It applies to all of us. And there, I think it's always really good to do something I try and do whenever confronted with a difficult circumstance, a difficult set of emotions, big surprises, that type of thing, is, is a big pause. A deep breath and a pause. In the case of something happening in my own life, the pause can just be for a few minutes. Sometimes it can be a little longer than that. 
When it comes to these larger questions, a pause for me means taking a deep breath and also doing a lot of listening, a lot of considering, a lot of reading of, of what these, what's in these cases. I read the decisions and I read the dissents of these cases to make sure I know what's in them and not just what's been put out into a short article or to a short 30-second soundbite for my consumption. I read those. I become really interested in seeing what are the limits of these cases. Uh, and there are limits to, to both of these decisions that are worth keeping in mind. But also, <laughs> in this case, pausing and reflecting on what these mean for the freedom of others brings me around to a larger question about equity. And by equity, again, I mean to what degree are we making avenues available and helping other people develop their own avenues to find an equitable way to find success, however that's defined by the individual, to find success in the society that we live in. One of the big questions that comes out is to what degree should government be involved in that? And that will probably never be solved. But it seems to me if government is involved in protecting infrastructure and developing infrastructure, there can be a role for government in helping develop equity. That on one level, when affirmative action was first established in the 1960s, that was part of the explanation for it, was coming off of not just slavery 100 years before, but 100 years of Jim Crow laws, that it made sense for the government to be actively involved providing federal funding to universities, which then in the interest of creating not just a diverse student uh, body that could all learn from each other to their benefit, but also would help redress the wrongs of the past, that by putting those things together, schools would have incentive to bring in people of different backgrounds, different colors, into their student body, even if they were coming from schools that did not have the same resources, did not have the same reputation as more, I guess, more higher pedigree schools, if you will. There are people who disagree with that. I myself wonder, in the aftermath of this decision, what will the effect be? Because universities are going to continue to want to have diverse populations, generally speaking. Any university, though, that takes federal money, and that is the majority of them, will now have to follow this federal law. That race cannot be used as a, as a basis for admission to university. That said, John Roberts' uh, ruling, the way he described it, said that race could be talked about on an individual basis by students, for example, in their admissions essays. Well, that will continue. And also, interestingly enough, the ruling exempts the military academies. Because the military academies, it says in the ruling, because they have diverse ranks in the military, they need diverse leadership. To me, that raises a really big question as to why, I understand why in the military that's important, but why isn't it important more largely in larger society, larger business, when you already have a very diverse population? Should there not then be diverse leadership of said population? To me, I have difficulty squaring those things, okay, side by side. So I wonder to what degree Will this change things? The state of California and others have, have gotten rid of, of affirmative action, but those are places that have spent a whole lot of money, Michigan's another one, have spent a whole lot of money on endeavors and efforts in 
public schools in elementary and intermediate schools to bring people from diverse backgrounds into the university system. So there's been more success there of those. Where's that money gonna come from in other states? Is it going to be available? Is it going to be a priority for other states, particularly so-called red states, to do that? That's an open question. And interestingly enough, another conversation that I had before the weekend uh, with a friend of mine, she was talking about her high school daughter who was looking at colleges, getting ready to apply to ones, and just said outright, I'm not gonna apply to uh, any schools in any states where abortion is restricted or illegal because she <laughs> didn't want to be there in case an unwanted pregnancy happened from whatever its source. And when I asked my friend, I said, is this something that all her friends are talking about? She said, yep, all her friends are talking about the same. And so I looked into that and I saw that there's also going on in a lot of red states, a lot of their young women are looking to go to schools outside these red states for the same reasons. If that plays out, that means you are going to have a lot of schools in these red-leaning states that are going to have fewer and fewer students in them. And those are schools that are already struggling. The Department of Agriculture is giving out millions of dollars in grants to rural colleges. There's a big, big article about it in The Atlantic last week to help keep these schools afloat because they're so important to these rural populations where they happen to be, which means if those schools close for any reason, and a brain drain of young women from their states will do that, then suddenly these rural areas, like the one I was in last week, are going to lose even more resources, even more connections to the larger prosperity of the country, even more money and people to the cities, to the urban areas, which is a main source of grievance in a lot of these rural areas to begin with. So all of these policies together, and I mean brought in the religious element of this, right? The, the conservative religious element of this. All these things interconnect together in ways that I don't think we necessarily are spending a lot of time thinking about. We're kind of taking each of these stories, the change with the Dobbs law, affirmative action, same-sex marriage, and freedom of expression for conservative Christians. We're kind of tr putting them all in kind of their own different locations and probably dividing them along the political canyon that exists in this country. But the fact of the matter is, they're all interconnected, just like we are. Because in the end, what is, what if evangelical Christians are going to now be protected in these types of businesses from expressing anything that runs contrary to their faith? What happens when someone from a religious point of view turns it around on an evangelical Christian? What's going to happen then? We don't know. Depends on the context, depends on what it is, depends on the business as well. How are those things going to go? And is it going to benefit those evangelical Christians who are entrepreneurs, like the plaintiff in this case? Is it going to benefit them? Are they going to be able to make enough business from people who think like them to be successful? Maybe, maybe not. And they may also give opportunities for others who are willing to create websites for same-sex couples to enter into a market that was going to help them maximize their own equity and opportunity in the country. All of which are unintended consequences for those who are advocating for the plaintiff in that particular case. 
So in the end, what do we all come down to as we come to the end of this episode of this show is all about you? One hand, you could say, yes, freedom is messy. And this is to be expected that this is standard operating procedure in this democracy. That there are individuals who have to petition for their rights in order to have them, keep them, preserve them, and protect them. And there are others who have to dissent against it in order to protect theirs. One of the things, though, to me, that I think is worth thinking about is, first of all, that no group of people in the history of America have ever just been given rights when they didn't have to fight for them. Name me one. Had to fight somebody, whether it was fighting the British <laughs> or going all the way back to the revolution or since then. People of every group imaginable has had to fight to gain rights under the Constitution. The second thing is that we seem to be caught in this belief from a number of directions that there are only so many rights to go around. That uh, laws protecting certain people, certain populations, certain people with certain identities, that somehow protecting them under the law is taking the rights away from somebody else in the process. You've all seen the memes. It's not pie, right? That's true. More rights for another group of people does not necessarily mean less rights for others. And in the case of this website case in particular, I don't even think that applies right, in terms of the ability to express her faith or make clear what her faith is. She's making that very clear. And the court ruled in her favor that she does not have to write anything that runs contrary to that because hers is a form of expression protected like what other artists and writers can say in their own words. So who knows where that's going to play out. But the very idea that somehow more rights for other people means less rights for everyone has no basis in reality. It might make things difficult. It might, might not always make things clear. But it seems to me it should be something we should be okay with or find a way to become more okay with being a part of. Protecting our own rights, yes, but making sure others get theirs. Which is why, don't tread on me in the end. My opinion is worthless. Okay, thank you so much for spending this time with me on this episode of This Show is All About You. I have a lot of thank yous to say on the way out, and i got to do it fast. If you want to know more about me, wordsbyjdk.com, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you can find me there, and you can find this as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This show is all about you. It's produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. This week, Nate Miller is my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thank you so much, Nate. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Thank yous this week. Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Bruce and Cindy Buller, Bruce Flommer, Ashley Kniebel, Adelina Popescu, Ingrid Johnson, Daryl Sutherland, Dean Cameron, Brittany Johnson, Stacey Heller, Casey Beck, or Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And to you listeners, thank you. I could not do this for you without you. And let's finish off this episode with an original haiku, as always. Freedom only goes as far as our belief in others will allow. Chins up, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>